Well, thank you very much for that very kind introduction, and it's certainly a pleasure to be here. It's been, it's been a few years since I've been at this meeting, but I always enjoy coming and seeing a lot of old friends. So it's, uh, again, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. So I've been given a couple of tasks today, and the first one we're going to talk about is what's new in photo protection, and obviously a very important field, uh, especially this time of year. I just did a piece uh, yesterday afternoon before I flew from New York for uh, Fox News on what's new in photo protection with regarding uh, why men don't use sunscreen as much as women. I don't know why they do a piece on TV about that. Men don't do anything health-wise as much as women, as my wife tells me. So. But uh, you know, I'm not going to be very product-specific today, but I do a lot of efficacy testing and, and a lot of other things for some of these companies. A lot of this is also in our textbook, uh, Cancer of the Skin, and I thank uh, many of the authors who wrote chapters related to this. Let's begin about why this is so important and talk a little bit about the extent of melanoma out there. Just to remind you that there are more skin cancers than all other cancers combined in the United States at this point. Invasive melanoma makes up only a small part of the skin cancer pie, about 76,000 plus estimated newly diagnosed cases of uh, invasive melanoma. This is one of the first papers I ever wrote. It's over 30 years ago with Al Kaff at NYU. And we tried to estimate at that point what the lifetime risk of an American developing melanoma would be. And it turned out that uh, at that point it was about 1 in 250. And we predicted it'd be 1 in 150 by the year 2000. And uh, we were criticized, actually, for being uh, way too uh, liberal in our estimates. But it turns out we're actually way too conservative in our estimates because we hit that uh, 1 in uh, 150 number, 1 in 100 number by 1993. And you can see currently um, it's now 1 in 53 lifetime risk of an American getting invasive melanoma. And should that rate of increase continue to 2020, it'll be about 1 in 40. So a significant public health problem with that. And if you add to those 76,000 cases an estimated 63,000 cases of in situ melanoma this year, do all the math, put that all together, it turns out that it's about a 1 in 24 lifetime risk of getting any kind of melanoma in the U.S. now. And again, that's all comers. So uh, if you look at just uh, Caucasians, in fact, that number is a little higher. Now, this is just shows you that the risk goes up by age. This is data from the government, from SEER. And uh, you can see the lifetime risk. This is just for whites now. The lifetime risk for males is about 1 in 50, uh, just invasive women, if, if you're 70 and over and one in 120 for women, 70 and over. But what happens is, with melanoma, every data set's the same, that under the age of 40, there's a predominance of women. At age 45, the curves cross, and at about by age uh, 80, it's about two to one uh, men to women. Nobody knows why this is so, but clearly, younger women are at greater risk than younger men for melanoma. We'll talk about why that might be in a little bit. The rate of increase is also increasing primarily in young white women and white males over 65. So again, the older men, you could say, well, they're just, uh, you can't teach an old dog new tricks, and uh, they've had so much sun exposure, you can't change it. But young women, probably related to tanning beds. We're really not going to spend a lot of time on that part of it today, but that's probably what it is. Again, this is data from SEER. You can see for men, US whites, invasive melanoma. Uh, you can see it's about 1 in 35. Now, if you look at the 10 leading causes of cancer, uh, melanoma is the fifth most common cancer in men, and it's the seventh most common cancer in women at this point overall. This is also interesting because this is, again, data from the U.S. for this year. But 
every data set worldwide is the same. There's about a four to three ratio of males to females with melanoma. Nobody knows why this is so, but every data set shows exactly the same thing. Um, do I have a mic at this point? Because it points a little bit, kind of. Yeah, there we go. The brown line is melanoma, and you can see the incidence rates of it going up both uh, for men and for women uh, here, too. So uh, this is the incidence going up over the last 10 years. And uh, what's interesting here, here's the absolute number of cases that we're seeing of invasive melanomas clearly going up over the 10-year period. But one of the arguments that's been made is that, well, the in situ cases are going up even faster, and that's why we're seeing more melanomas. But this is kind of interesting. This is the ratio of invasive to in situ cases in the U.S. And you can see over the last 10 years, it's pretty much stayed the same each year. So it's not that we're seeing so many more in situ cases. We're just seeing more melanomas overall, and the mix is basically the same. And the more important part of that is we're seeing more thick melanomas. We're seeing an increased number overall of thinner melanomas, but the absolute number of thick melanomas is still rising, which is a problem. This is not just the disease of whites. This is some data from Hispanics in California showing the rate's been going up. Some good news about melanoma is that the survival rate is improving over time, only because of early diagnosis. But still, distant disease is bad. I, I tell people, my patients, or I'm doing a soundbite on TV, that a melanoma the size of a dime on your skin has a 50% chance of having already spread. That's what makes it so lethal. It spreads very early in its course. So again, if you catch it early and treat it early, uh, melanoma is not a big deal. But once it spreads, basically nothing works well. People do die of melanoma. Over 9,700 Americans, it's estimated, will die from melanoma this year. So it is a significant public health problem. As I mentioned earlier, the number of thick melanomas is still going up. So over time, we see the uh, mortality rate for invasive melanoma still is rising, not as quickly as the incidence. But more importantly, this is side of our report card. And you can see here's the last nine years for a number of, absolute number of deaths from melanoma in the US. And you can see, despite everything we're doing, more people are dying from melanoma. So we have to look at ways to try to lower that death rate at the end of the day if we're going to be successful in dermatology. You can see about a 2 to 1 ratio of men to women with death from melanoma. And that's primarily because men just put off their treatment and tend to present with uh, more advanced tumors. You can see that very few cancers are increasing in rate in the US. Melanoma is one of those few that are. So this is how the public views dermatology, right? <laughs> We're fun people, right? We like to have a good time and do everything with it. But the reality is, that's the perception that's out there. And uh, we know a lot about sun. And most people, this looks like a great picture, right? But we know better, because we know that photo protection is important. And uh, we also know that, although this also looks like a good picture, that a little too much ultraviolet radiation can lead to a melanoma. So melanoma is one of the few cancers where you know the primary cause, excess ultraviolet radiation exposure. And where a simple behavioral change, minimizing that UV exposure, can lower the risk of getting that cancer. So uh, a lot, unlike a lot of other cancers, we don't have that choice. We do have that in melanoma. When you look at the relationship of melanoma to sun intensity and UV intensity, it's there. And this is, again, data from SEER, which is the government data collection effort. And you can see on these sites, the closer you get to the equator, the greater the incidence of melanoma. So a direct correlation for that, as you'd expect, with something related to ultraviolet exposure. Another paper that was done in Europe basically showing that uh, the, cl the, the closer you get to the equator, the greater the risk. And uh, also, melanoma is related to the number of 
absolute hours you get of sun exposure. This is data from Australia, and this is melanoma basal, uh, squamous cells and basal cells in different sites in Australia by the amount of radiation in those areas directly correlates with it. Also, if you look at the average uh, ultraviolet radiation flux, in other words, the amount of energy you get over time and outdoor, you can directly predict the melanoma risk. For, so every 10% increase in annual UVB you're exposed to, your melanoma risk goes up about 19 to 20%. So again, directly correlating with that. Now, this is not just for fair-skinned individuals. They've done this with Hispanics and blacks in the US and other things, and you can see it's directly correlated. So we talk about sun protection. What are the wavelengths we're looking at? And obviously, there's a broadband radiation spectrum across all radiations. But we care about primarily in melanoma is the ultraviolet spectrum. Now, what's interesting, when you look at the ultraviolet radiation spectrum, and you look overall at the radiation spectrum we for the sun, about 49% is actually in the near infrared. In other words, the infrared area right near red, right beyond red. About 43% is in the visible light range. Only 7% of the energy from the sun is actually in the UV range. And then 1% is in x-rays and microwaves to do that. So when you look at these components, you can see that we're focused primarily on this area here when we're looking at UV exposure for skin cancer. And what's also interesting is that although the ultraviolet A radiation is lower in energy for a given ray compared to ultraviolet B, there's about 20 times more UVA in natural sunlight than there is in UVB. So we, worry, we think about SPF for protecting from UVB, but we also have to protect from UVA over time. And the difference over the year from winter to summer is much greater for UVB than it is for UVA. So the difference between June and December is major in UVB, but not quite as great in UVA. We have three kinds of UV. UVC is blocked by the ozone layer, so we kind of don't think about that too much on the surface of the Earth. Now, traditionally, we said, well, UVB was related to sunburn and UVA was related to aging, but that's not so clear-cut anymore. UVA also can cause skin cancer, and it can be synergistic more than additive with UVB in terms of that cause. So how do sunscreens work? And this is kind of, I don't have the, unfortunately, I forgot to bring the video that goes with this, but you can see everything moving around. It looks like a Rube Goldberg kind of thing. But the bottom line is that sunscreens are basically a catalytic kind of thing, and they will recycle through these pathways. Every once in a while, they get moved off here, and they become non-photo, they break down what's called photostability. In other words, their ability to uh, continue to work is broken down by light energy. But one molecule of, sun of sunscreen can actually wipe out tens of thousands of ultraviolet ray energies before it itself gets broken down. So that's what makes it effective. And the longer it keeps it being broken down, the more photostable it is. So we have to look at different formulations of sunscreens, too. We talk about things. In the past, we talked about um, screens versus blocks. Well, those aren't PC terms anymore. We call them inorganic versus organic sunscreens. So the inorganic sunscreens are the metal oxides, like zinc oxide and titanium oxide. The organic sunscreens are the ones we think about, the so-called sunscreens in the past, all the others. And what makes them different is they all have different absorption curves. So this is basically, the higher this is, the better the sunscreens are. So here's a typical filter, or an organic one. Now the, here's with the zinc oxide, you can see is pretty stable across all the different wavelengths because it is doing some reflecting, so it kind of blocks everything kind of evenly, but perhaps not as well. And what you see from this, probably the best combination in sunscreen is a mixture of organic and inorganic to get you the best uh, protection. Now, sunscreens do protect against sun burning. 
A couple of examples here. This was actually two of my son's friends. They were on vacation in the Bahamas, and they used a spray sunscreen quite effectively. So you can see exactly where it worked and exactly where they missed, right? And my son, being the good son of a dermatologist, took that picture and sent it to me. Um, he did not have the sunburns. These are not my sons. But uh, they do work. This is another patient of mine who used a lip gloss sunscreen on her legs. And uh, she came in and complained. Actually, she actually came to me because she wanted me to back up. She wanted to file a lawsuit against the manufacturer for this. And I argued that uh, this shows pretty well that it works where you apply it if you use the right formulation. And this is the best one. This is a woman who was on vacation in Miami Beach with her husband, who was a uh, senior exec at Goldman Sachs. And he had st he, she was lying on the beach, and she, he had started applying the sunscreen. And you can see kind of where his finger marks kind of stopped. And he got a phone call that he had to take for 45 minutes. And he came back, and you can see she has a second-degree burn subsequently by the time she was back in New York with blisters. And it was a very expensive phone call for him when he had to make it up to his wife. So. Uh, it was, uh, but sunscreens do block sunburning. Nobody argues about that. But what about are they effective at lowering melanoma risk? And certainly in animals, we know that to be the case. Here's one study that was just looking at mice exposed to SPF 15 versus controls. And the sunscreens certainly inhibited uh, melanogenesis and other cancer-related issues. But the issue on melanoma in humans and sunscreen is a bit confusing. Now, this is kind of an older slide, but it's a little bit busy. But what this is is a bunch of studies that were done over about a 20 plus year period looking at whether people who regularly use sunscreen lowered their risk of melanoma. And what this is, this is when the SPFs of sunscreens were available, so here are two to four. SPF 15 became available primarily in 1985-ish or so to 1990, and these are when the higher SPFs were available. So all the ones in red basically said if you use sunscreen, your risk of getting melanoma was increased. All the ones in brown showed no difference, and all the ones in green said if you use sunscreen, it was protective, it lowered your melanoma risk. Well, how can so many, these are all good researchers, how can so many people come up with so many different results here? The reason is these were all retrospective studies. So you'd ask the patient, uh, five years ago, how often did you use sunscreen? You can imagine the quality of this data and you get it all over the board. So what's really needed is a prospective study. We had a large sample size divided them into two groups, one that used sunscreen, one that didn't use sunscreen. And you'd have to treat them for at least five years and follow them for five or more years because it takes that amount of time from the time you do the damage in the sun till you start seeing the melanomas. So that study actually has now been done and published. It was done by Adele Green in Australia, published a couple of years ago. And Queensland, Australia is the northernmost point of Australia, so it's uh, the sunniest, the closest to the equator, and they have the highest rate of melanoma in the world there. And what she did, they couldn't really say you couldn't use sunscreen. So they divided the group up into those who were told to use it every day and those to use it when they felt like it, the daily versus discretionary group. They were treated for five years and then followed for 10 years. And here's the results. If you looked at those who used it when they felt like it and compared it to those who used it daily, those who used it daily only had half the chance of getting melanoma of those who used it when they felt like it. If you looked at just invasive melanomas, they only had about a fourth the chance of getting invasive melanoma if they regularly use sunscreen every day. So again, a prospective study for the first time, you can definitively tell patients it's been shown that the regular use of sunscreen lowers your risk of getting melanoma. Now, how many people, do you know what this is? The Environmental Working Group, you ever heard of this group at all? Anybody here? They, a few people, good, okay. Well, they actually 
make a big splash every year the Monday before Memorial Day. So they have, their splashes are a little less each year. But what they do is they come out with a report each year that talks about that sunscreens aren't safe. And they've gotten a lot of press out of this, and I will talk about them a little more later, what they do. But the bottom line is, when they come out with this report every year, they talk about a variety of things that could be unsafe, but they really are not dermatologists, not even photobiologists. These, these reports are kind of like a book report. They'll go and look at toxicology literature and put it together and say, okay, if you have too much of this chemical, maybe it's bad. But they, they put together a whole score formula based not so much on whether it's protective or lowering skin cancer, but whether it has these other things that they don't like to do this. And one of the things they've picked on in sunscreen, and they picked on it again this year in the report, though, they, they did it in 2010 too, which is uh, the vitamin A derivatives, retinyl palmitate, which is in probably about 40% of sunscreens. It's not a sunscreening agent itself, it's a photostabilizer. So when patients come in and say, I hear vitamin A in my sunscreen, is that bad? Um, this is because this report that they come out with every year to do this. But the argument they make is that the regular use of vitamin A and its derivatives can thin the skin. And therefore, if the skin is thinner, it's more likely to be damaged by ultraviolet radiation. Well, I think we all know that that's not true because we use Retin-A to try to thicken thin skin and try to get rid of photo damage and things of that sort. And you can do it with retinyl palmitate, it's just that Retin-A is a little more effective. But the reality is, is that they look at this data and they get a lot out of this. We'll talk about why in a moment. But you can see here retinyl palmitate, here it is. It's, you know, it's an esterase of retinol and vitamin A, so it's in this pathway and it's used on a regular basis. However, there's been a number of reviews done. This was done by Steve Wang, who's a former fellow of ours. But he looked at this, and the fact is there's no data to show that retinyl palmitate is dangerous in the skin. And also, it's used by tens of millions of people every weekend in the summer, and you're not seeing the kinds of things that are predicted by the Environmental Working Group report. So I think you can tell your patients safely that retinyl palmitate is not a bad thing for this. I think it's important we correct this false conception that people have. So the second thing that was picked on was oxybenzone. Now oxybenzone is a benzophenone. It's another one of the sunscreening agents. So the issue was with oxybenzone is that there was a study that looked at immature rats, immature female rats that were given oxybenzone to eat. And when they ate enough oxybenzone, there were some uterotropic effects on those immature female rats. However, the amount of sunscreen that they ate, or oxybenzone that they ate, was an incredible amount. And I'll show you what the numbers are. So it really would not be anything close to what you'd see in, in human use of sunscreens. And this was actually the same Stephen Wang who published this in the archives a couple of years ago, where he tried to see how much sunscreen you'd have to use to get the same amount of oxybenzone that the rats got in one meal, okay? And uh, he looked at three scenarios. One was that you covered the entire human body surface with the rated amount of sunscreen of two milligrams per square centimeter, which nobody uses, as we'll show you in a moment. The second amount is that you covered your entire body at a dose of 50% of the rated amount, which is more realistic. And the third scenario was you just covered your face and the backs of your hands roughly about 25% of the body surface area at half the rated amount, which is a realistic amount for this. So it turns out that for the one meal that the rats had, if you used sunscreen on your entire body every day, it would take 34 and a half years to get that much oxybenzone exposure. 
And if you just use your face or the backs of your hands, it would take 277 years to get the same amount as you got with that one, the rats got in one meal. So the reality from this is that that really doesn't make any sense. Oxybenzone is safe. And again, tens of millions of people use it every weekend. And we're not seeing the things that we'd expect to see if that was the case. So you could tell your patients oxybenzone is safe too. Now, when you look at sunscreen, this is not, this, there we go. And the other hot thing that's in sunscreen now is in antioxidants. Do they make the sunscreens more effective? Well, they probably do. The problem is that some of the brands of sunscreen put a pinch of antioxidant in it. You feel warm and fuzzy because antioxidant's a nice word, uh, but it doesn't really have much efficacy. But there have been studies that show that, in fact, that there's a quenching of reactive oxygen species that occur with antioxidants. A bunch of them have been used. The hottest one that's typically out there are the polyphenols, which are found in green tea, but a whole bunch of other, uh, the uh, resveratrol, which is uh, basically found in grape skin, so you get that drinking red wine too. Uh, and uh, there's a bunch of other things you could use. Um, antioxidants, in fact, do add value to a sunscreen. This was a study done in the JID looking at this, so there's some value to it. And they looked at a couple of additional studies. This is one looking at vitamin C. And in fact, vitamin C has a small protective role. If you put liquid vitamin C on you, it has an SPF on itself of about two. So it really doesn't raise a little bit, but it, it additive to other sunscreening agents can make a difference. Here's a study that looked at vitamin C plus vitamin E. And in fact, again, as antioxidants, they had some value. Another study looking at vitamin C and vitamin E showing the same thing, that antioxidants that had some value. You've all probably heard of the FDA sunscreen monograph that's been out there. That is not a typo. The FDA started their analysis of this in 1978, believe it or not. It's still not finalized. <laughs> and uh, in typical government speak, I uh, hope nobody's listening to this, um, the, uh, they've several times had what's called a tentative final monograph. That sounds like an oxymoron, right? Tentative final. But uh, the reality is this was the most recent tentative final monograph that came out in 2011 where they had some final rules, most of which finally have been adopted. We'll talk about them. There's a few still up in the air with this, though. But the big news is that the labeling of sunscreen has changed to make it easier for us to uh, tell our patients what to do besides telling them here are the brands you have to get. There had been a proposal to make sun, SPF sunburn protection factor, but they're leaving it as sun protection factor. So that's staying the same. This is the thing that's somewhat controversial about whether to put a cap of 50 plus on sunscreens. About half the countries of the world have caps on the SPF, the other halves don't. I'm gonna show you the pros and cons about what the advantages and disadvantages are. Now this environmental working group, our friends over here that I picked on before, they say that one in seven sunscreens in the US are dangerous, and why? Because they lead, they say that any sunscreen that has an SPF greater than 50, is dangerous because it leads to a false sense of security because it means you can stay out in the sun longer. Uh, and the reality is that's not true, but I'll show you the pros and cons of really having the cap. First, the pros of a cap, higher SPF sunscreen just cost more, and there's little marginal improvement of the amount of UVB protection, which is really the SPF measure, uh, for higher SPF. So what do I mean by that? Well, here's an absorption curve, and here's an SPF 15, 30, 45, and 50, and as you see, as you get to the difference between 50 and 100 is only about a 1% difference. So therefore, when you look at this, if you only have that 1% difference, 100 sounds like it's a lot better than 50, right? But it's only that 1% difference in protection. 
Now, people underapply sunscreen. These are studies that were done looking with the UV cameras. If you put a UVA absorbing sunscreen on somebody and use a UVA flash, the sunscreen absorbs all the UVA energy. So you see the dark spots where the sunscreen was applied, but the light spot is where people miss. And it's an easy way that we've done some studies looking where people actually miss uh, sunscreens. So the reality, though, is that the higher SPFs are more forgiving, and in real-world applications, they will work better. What do I mean by that? Here's the same graph, but this assumes that people apply two milligrams per square centimeter. Nobody applies that much. You'd be as white as that tablecloth if you did. So you ask, why, did, why is the testing done at two milligrams per square centimeter? Because in 1970, when the first testing was done, that's how they did it. And at that concentration, the testing is reproducible. If you go down to one milligram or a half milligram, you don't get as constant a result. So the FDA left that testing level at the unrealistic amount. And frankly, the, sun, the sunscreen companies kind of like the higher number too because if they went to the real world SPFs, all of a sudden the SPFs would be lower. So it's a little bit of a marketing thing, but the feds have not changed this. As I mentioned, typic people typically apply 25 to 50% of the rated amount. So somewhere between a half and one milligram per square centimeter. Now, are these higher formulations more effective in the real world? This was a paper, we have a home in Bell, Colorado, and this is my fellow, Julie Rusak, who published this in the JAD a couple of years ago. We used this on ski instructors, and we had a split-face, randomized, double-blind study comparing SPF 85 with SPF 50. Now, this is skiing at Vail in the winter, so pretty intense UV exposure. It took, on average at noon, it was 22 minutes for one MED or a sunburning. So, uh, it turned out, you can see, it was this, a statistically significant difference in the sunburning in the SPF 50s versus the 85s. And in fact, this is the only study that was quoted in the FDA monograph on this particular issue. So um, clearly, there was a difference with this. So we also did a subsequent study that we did in, vi in vitro, just looking in the lab and what the differences would be. This was published in the JAD in uh, late 2012. And we looked at six different formulations of sunscreen from SPF 30 to SPF 100. And we looked at four different application densities of, from a half milligram up to the rated two milligrams per square centimeter. And these were on human subjects. And what you see is kind of interesting. If you look at the 30 and the 250s, what you see if you look at down here, the actual amount of protection you would get if people only applied 25% of the rated amount is much less even than an SPF 15. So realistically, it shows you that perhaps the 30 and the 50 might not be enough in the real world applications to get you the protection you need. And uh, therefore, the higher SPFs had some value. So we published this also. Now, there's a second con to having a cap, and that is if it's a 50 plus, you don't know if it's 51 or 100. Well, that might not matter for these people, but it matters for these people, especially if they're in skiing in Valor in Florida or wherever in the islands where they need extra protection, they won't know what they're getting. The third one's just a pragmatic reason that uh, if the sunscreen companies can't get a better, higher SPF, they won't get credit for it. So, um, you know, right now, that cap is still up in the air. It has not been put in place. Um, they're asking for more studies, more studies being done by several groups. The rumor is there may be a cap of 80. Time will tell for this, but depending on how it's finalized, we'll see what happens with it. Well, that's about UVA protection, UVB protection. What about UVA protection? Well, in the past, there was no, nothing on UVA protection on sunscreen bottles whatsoever, unless there was some non-specific term like uh, protects from UVA, or broad spectrum was a term that meant nothing in the past. Now, why is this a problem? Well, UVB me measurement is easy. 
get a subject, you have two spots, you apply the sunscreen, and then on the test site, and then you expose them to natural sunlight, and you look at the ratio of the time of the unprotected to the protected skin burning, you do the math, that ratio is the SPF. Pretty easy to do. Suppose you tried the same experiment, two spots, applied the sunscreen, but here you have a UVA-only filter that only lets the UVA light go through. Well, the problem is that the UVA is not strong enough in natural sunlight to burn you. So this clock would go forever. You wouldn't get to a burning point with natural sunlight. So you can't measure it the same way. So how do you determine what UVA protection is? Well, there's a couple of other ways to do it. You could look at other endpoints besides sunburning, or you could use in vitro measurements to take a look. And I'm not going to go into all the different details of way to do this, but this is what's been adopted by the government, something called the critical wavelength method. It's a measure of the amount of UVA protection that's in a sunscreen. So this is, there's no agreed upon way I'm going to show you the way this is. It's a little early in the morning for calculus. But if you have two sunscreen absorption curves, here's the wavelengths. Here's the amount of protection. High is good. Here's one sunscreen. Here's another sunscreen. If you look at the points such as 90% of the areas on this side of the line and see what wavelength the line crosses at, that's called the critical wavelength. So this one's better. You can see it has a higher critical wavelength in general. And that's how this works. So this, the way the monograph, that's the, we talked about, the monograph defines this is it's a pass-fail instead of a number. It's a pass-fail for ultraviolet A protection. The critical wavelength has to be greater than 370. If it's greater than 370, it passes basically for this. So looking at it graphically, here's UVB, UVA protection, and a, and a sunscreen absorption curve. You draw a line such that 90% of the area is on one side, 10% on the other side. You see where it crosses. In this case, it would be a critical wavelength of 374. It would pass. So it passed pass the pass-fail test. Now, there's something called proportionality, which is very important, which means that let's suppose Here's, you can see this is one that passed at 374. Now suppose I decided I wanted to make better UVB protection in my sunscreen and forget about the UVA. So I add all this UVB protection. What happens? That 10% curve now dropped to 365 because I, I weighted more area on the UVB side, and this would fail. So you have to, when you increase the UVB protection in a sunscreen, in order to be broad spectrum, you have to proportionately increase the UVA protection so that you get the line back to the other side. So that's the whole idea behind proportionality and why this critical wavelength method works in most cases to predict how you've done. Now, it measures the breadth of this thing, but it doesn't measure the magnitude. So I could have a, two sunscreens here, and you can see that both of them have a critical wavelength of 377. But which sunscreen would you rather have, right? You'd rather have this one, not this one, because you've got a lot of UVB, but overall the area is the same. So there's ways to trick this critical wavelength method to make it look better than it really is. Most of the good companies don't do that, but there's ways to do that. Now, the other thing is when you think about it, where do you really want the protection in sunscreen? Well, you want it where the action is. So here's the, the action spectrum of squamous cell carcinoma. You can see it's more in the UVB. So you still want to have good UVB protection no matter what for this. And the other thing that's interesting is that in the past, we've said these two UVA protection, UVB protection, these two things are kind of independent. But it's really not true. So let me show you. Here's a PFA is like the uh, SPF for uh, UVA. So it's just a ratio. So here I've got something that's an SPF 50 sunscreen, right? And it's got reasonable UVA protection. Suppose I add a little more UVA protection. Now I've got, you can see I haven't touched the UVB. I just added a UVA sunscreening agent. 
but the overall SPF still got raised. See, it goes from 50 to 64. And I can do this again, add a little more. Again, I haven't touched the UVB part of it. However, now the SPF, as you see, has risen to 77. And I can do this again, raising the UVA protection a little more. Again, not touching the UVB side of it, but if you did a test, now the SPF is up to 93. So there is some overlap between this. They're not totally independent events. So again, what's going on the labeling now, the word broad spectrum means it passes that critical wavelength test to do this. So this is sort of a generic bottle of sunscreen from the FDA. And in order to use the word broad spectrum, it has to have at least an SPF of 15 with there. So right now, if it's SPF 15 and it passes the UVA test, it can say broad spectrum. And for the first time on the labeling, it can say the regular use of this with other sun protection measures decreases the risk of skin cancer and early skin aging caused by the sun. It has to be broad spectrum and at least SPF 15 to make this claim. First time ever on sunscreen they can make a claim that lowers skin cancer risk. Now, if it doesn't have both of those factors, if it has neither of them or it's broad spectrum and less than 15 or 15 and not broad spectrum, it cannot make that claim. It has to say instead, this product has been shown only to prevent sunburn, not skin cancer, early skin aging. So that's the required wording on one that don't pass both of those tests. What, there's no such thing as waterproof anymore in the labeling either. There's only water resistant 40 minutes or water resistant 80 minutes. No more sweat proof, no more sunblock. Those terms can't be used, no all day protection. Now, do you, anybody know why they use 40 minutes and 80 minutes for the numbers on there? Another dumb reason, because of the, the basement of the, the uh, University of Pennsylvania where they did the original testing in the 1970s, they had a 40-minute uh, timer, baking timer. And uh, they would take subjects, they would put the sunscreen on and put them in a pool in the basement there, and they swam as long as the timer, they came out and tested them, then they threw them back in the pool for another 40 minutes, and they tested for another 40 minutes. Believe it or not, that's how the FDA got that, and that's why they picked 40 to 80 minutes. So a little bit of trivia for you today. But uh, that's going to be on there, either nothing, waterproof 40 minutes, waterproof 80 minutes. There's a drug fact box that has to be now on every container of sunscreen. And these bottles aren't that big, and especially the samples. You'll notice now that we're going to have fewer sunscreen samples because each of those samples has to have a little accordion thing that, pick, that opens up with all these messages on it. It can't just be on the box of samples, so that's going to be changing and it's making the cost of making those samples much more expensive. The directions of how to apply the sunscreen has to be on there how to protect yourself, all these things have to now be on the labeling. Now, they in fact were talking about getting this done by a year ago, December. Um, they kind of got most of it done, a few more things to go yet. But what is interesting is that a bunch of formulations are covered, but what's not covered are wipes, towelettes, powders, body washes, and shampoos. And you can imagine you're going to see a lot more wipes, towelettes, powders, body washes, and shampoos because they're not as regulated. So you're starting to see them on the market too. This is made the media in a variety of ways. So given this, what can we tell our patients with sunscreens now about protection? They can look for a broad spectrum, SPF 30 or higher, and water resistant 80 minutes. Those are the three things they should look for on a container of sunscreen, and that has to be on the labeling. Broad spectrum, SPF 30 or higher, and water resistant for 80 minutes. Now, is this all that's needed to make a patient recommendation at this point? Well, the answer is there are other key factors that are not taken into account by the new labeling rules. First of all, 
application container. Believe it or not, certain containers are better than others. Here's a study that was in the archives a couple of years ago, and it turned out that basically, if you look at the type of container, it makes a difference in terms of how effective the sunscreen is applied. The second thing is how photostable is. We talked about photostability earlier, but basically, here's two sets of sunscreens. This is a sunscreen that no matter how much ultraviolet you give it, it's still as strong. Here's a sunscreen that's breaking down. So this is the number of joules of ultraviolet energy. By the time you hit 50 joules, which is about you know, an hour and a half, two hours, you can see how this is broken down. It's a much weaker sunscreen. So that's a much not as photostable a sunscreen. But that photostability is not in the labeling at all. And the other thing is that here's two sunscreens that over time would have, you test them, would have the same photostability, one that's constant. But here's one that's not photostable. It's really strong at the start, but you can see it at one burn, one MED, it's already down to next to nothing. So it's not just the, the actual value, but it's the value over time that makes a difference. And the third thing is cosmetic acceptability. If it's yucky, nobody's going to use it, right? So I tell my patients to try a little bit on the back of their hands and see what they like and which formulation works the best for them. Now, there are 19 sunscreening agents. Those are the active sunscreen agents that are available in the US. So if you want to make a sunscreen, you just take a pinch of one of those 19 agents and put it in a moisturizer. That's a sunscreen in the US. However, there are a number of additional agents that are available in Europe and also in Japan. The uh, feds have something called a TEA, which is a time and extent application, which is supposed to fast track the approval of these agents. There are seven of them in Europe that are been in the TEA process, the fast track process, for almost five years. <laughs> I hate to see what the slow track process is. But the, uh, the fast track process we're waiting on, you hear about this in the news all the time. Senator Blumenthal from Connecticut's been pushing this. Congresswoman Maloney's been pushing this. Hopefully, we'll get them approved. They're safe. Uh, they have some advantages in terms of photostability. What we have is not bad, but this gives us some extra options. Going back to the environmental working group again. This is what I want to show you when we talk about this group. They have a little bit of a conflict of interest. This is from their website. If you go to their thing and say, I want to see your report, it says, want to see this, click here and donate now. And then once they get your email, once a week you'll get a solicitation from them. We need $89,000 this week to do another project or something. So if you go to their thing, as I mentioned before, here, for example, is one that they don't, they don't like very much. Neutrogena, they don't like because it's got a high SPF. So, the higher the score, the worse it is. They score from a 1 to 10, so 7 is not very good. But here's something they don't like very much. However, it says click, if you click the bottle, it goes right to Amazon.com, and you buy it, and they get a click-through revenues on it. <laughs> so of all the things in their report, they're making money if you go to their website and then buy the sunscreen they recommend, or the ones they don't recommend to do it. Even consumer reports, which you think would be a very uh, unbiased review of things, when you look at the data from them, uh, they also have this, the same thing. Here's, they did a report this past spring where they looked at the sunscreens, a buying guide, what to look for. They looked at 12 sunscreens. If you read through it, it says that they review sunscreens, give you honest buying advice that you can trust, use our sunscreen buying guide to discover which features are most important to consider. Well, again, if you click through, you get, they get click, here are the ones that they recommend, and same thing, you can click and buy them, but they get click-through revenues on it. So in other words, they get, they get a commission for selling it. So, Again, a little disappointing when you see that. I'm going to spend a few minutes on vitamin D because that's so important because it comes up, you know, do people who use good photo protection, they have low vitamin D levels. And the issue with vitamin D was known for almost 200 years that a, a lack of vitamin D, a lack of sun exposure led to rickets. But about 100 years ago, it was finally noted that sunlight cured rickets. 
And that's when vitamin D supplementation really took place in milk and other foods. Oops, sorry. Um, so let's go a little bit of vitamin D synthesis. Uh, you've got natural sunlight, you've got skin, and in the skin is dehydrocholesterol. And when ultraviolet hits that, it's broken down into pre-vitamin D3 and then into vitamin D3. And at, this is the point where if you have foods that are fortified with vitamin D, like milk or fish, it enters the pathway there, or vitamin D pills. And the reason that's important is that you do not need ultraviolet energy in the skin to convert vitamin D to a usable form when it's in a supplement. So if you take vitamin D capsules or you take milk or fish or whatever, the reality is that your, your vitamin D is already pre-converted for you. At that point, it goes to the liver to dehydroxy, to 25-hydroxy uh, vitamin D3, and then to, through the kidneys, to the usable form of 125-dihydroxy vitamin D3. Now that's the actual usable form but it's hard to measure that. So this is what's typically measured in the bloodstream. There is a small number of people who have, a small number of people who don't have the ability to convert from here to here. So they look like they have normal vitamin D levels, but they're vitamin D deficient, but that's a very small number of people. These are the old recommended amounts of the SOHO 400 or 600 uh, uh, international units a day. Some people recommend 800. Too much vitamin D is bad too. You get kidney stones and other problems. But one quart of milk has about 400 units, so you'd have to drink about a quart and a half of milk a day to get all the vitamin D if you did nothing else. Most people don't do that. Um, there's another issue with vitamin D conversion, and that is there's a limitation. So in other words, I've got vitamin D stores, and I put some ultraviolet light on the, uh, on the skin, and serum vitamin D levels go up. But however, you get to a point where that system overflows. So you only get to, when you get to about one-third of a burn, one-third of an MED, that system is overrided, and you don't get any more out of it. So telling people just go out there and bake in the sun to get vitamin D makes no sense. You know, also, because once that system is overloaded, it takes about a day to reset. Now, there's a, a guy named Michael Hollick, who is an endocrinologist at uh, BU, and he is the guy who's the vitamin D guy. He's on the payroll of vitamin D groups and, and what actually drives these groups, by the way, are the tanning industry, and I'll show you why in a moment. But uh, he's saying that there's an epidemic of hypovitaminosis D, that there's an epidemic of rickets in the US. How many of you have ever seen a case of rickets? Has anybody ever seen a case of Usually it's like one person in the audience. I've seen one in my life for a crazy reason, that uh, somebody who was a stowaway on a ship from Africa to New York who came to Bellevue and hadn't had any real reasonable food for like six months. So you don't really see things like this very often. But, and he talks about this and said there's a latitude gradient related to cancer. In other words, the closer you are to the equator, the lower the rates of cancer. So that must be vitamin D related and a whole bunch of other issues. But he talks about this, again, epidemic of low levels of vitamin D and that there's sensible sun exposure. Go get a little sun a couple of times a week and your vitamin D level will be fine. Well, why is it, where's this epidemic from? Well, when, when blood tests are done, typically the abnormal ends are the 2 or 3% on both sides of the bell curve. So this is the typical normal amounts for vitamin D. Here's a bell curve of people. You expect about a 2 or 3% to be low in any test. But what he's recommended is that, that there be a higher normal level. So if you do that, all of a sudden raise the normal level up to 80 nanomoles as being normal, then all of a sudden half the population is vitamin D deficient. And that's where this comes from. I'm sure you hear from patients. I went to my internist and I'm vitamin D deficient. Everybody, it's sort of like an epidemic with the thinking, primarily of internists that are out there. So the fact is that there's no consensus on what the specific level of normal vitamin D is at this point, and even hospitals like Mass General are not changing their numbers. 
So do you get enough incidental sun exposure to keep your vitamin D levels normal in most places in the U.S.? And the answer is yes. This was a study done by Jay Nash, who's a Ph.D. at Procter & Gamble. And there were people, 85 subjects, giving diaries and every five minutes recording what they did for a week or two. And it turned out, on average, that people actually spend 40 minutes a day outside during the week and almost two hours a day on the weekend. And this was actually done in the winter. And uh, you could see that people are just going in and out of your car to, your, to the supermarket or the post office or whatever you're doing, taking a quick walk. It actually adds up over time. So theoretically, if they use an SPF 15 product every day the way it was rated, the reality is that, in fact, they'd still have enough vitamin D level to do this. Um, a couple of other studies related to this, that's, this is a study that showed there's been a, a claim that maybe people get osteoporosis if they're using too much sunscreen. This study refuted that. It did not make a difference. And this is an extreme. These are patients who had xeroderma pigmentosa who are, you know, get no UV exposure, right? They're protected totally because of their problem with skin cancer. Despite rigorous protection, they had low normal but normal vitamin D levels with supplementation. Now, what about indoor tanning? That's the argument that tanning parlors make, and what drives a lot of this is that you need vitamin D. You can get it more faster and more efficiently if you go to an indoor tanning salon. Well, which of these two people are more likely to be vitamin deficient, vitamin D deficient, right? This person, a little darker skin, a little more resistant. But who's the person more likely to go to the tanning salon? This person, right, who's trying to get a tan. So the wrong people are even driven, being driven to the tanning salons for this. The other thing is if you look at the ultraviolet radiation in tanning beds, the ratio is totally wrong because there's a way over high predominance of UVA. But the reality is that's the wavelength you want for vitamin D production. So it's not even efficient. Uh, sunlight for vitamin D, and you're getting all that damage, too. Um, now, the, this is the extreme. This is a, a surfer guy in California, and in Hawaii, rather. And what they did is they looked at vitamin D levels in these guys. And it turns out that with the new levels that were being suggested for normal, under these guys who spent an average of 20-something hours a week, uh, they, in fact, 50% would be considered vitamin D deficient uh, under these new levels that are there. So. Again, I went through this before, but you can see, this is what I alluded to, that at about one-third of an MED, the vitamin D synthesis caps out. So just getting, you can do, you get DNA damage, sunburn, all the other issues, but you're not getting vitamin D benefits anyway. So does chronic sunscreen use reduce vitamin D levels to insufficient levels? A number of studies show that that's not true. Here's one. Here's a more recent study that was done in Australia showing that sun protective behavior to reduce the skin cancer can be maintained without affecting vitamin D levels. And the way to do that is simple. If you really believe that you're going to be vitamin D deficient, go to GNC or one of those places. The pills cost about a penny a piece. I take 1,000 units a day. I feel fine. Everything's good. This is the Academy's consensus conference that was published with Henry Lim. And basically, the most effective way to get this is through supplementation and not put yourself at risk for skin cancer. So vitamin D is important. Best way to get vitamin D is without incidental exposure and supplements as needed. And sunscreen uses does not have a material impact on vitamin D levels. You can tell your patients that, too. So other things that are coming out with sunscreens are kind of interesting. For the first time last year, in September, the sales of sprays exceeded the sales of creams and tubes. So number one formulation is now sprays, uh, by far. And we're seeing some other formulations, too. This is a, a stick that you put on, basically, that people like roll-on or the stick. And of course, I think most of you know what polypodium, HelioCare, you see it advertised on TV. It's a, basically an extract of a plant 
that it's not really a sunscreen per se, but it does lower some damage. The original studies were only based on about uh, seven or eight people, but now there have been some larger studies done. This was done on 61 subject, showing that it significantly increased the MED mean in all the groups, including those who had a higher risk, whether you have dysplastic nevi or history of uh, familial or personal melanoma. Um, other things have been looked at for sun protection too. This one showed that beta carotene had had no effect uh, in terms of looking at sunscreen uh, protection. Uh, melanomas have been shown in the U.S. to have a slight propensity to left sides on men more than women, about 52 to 48 percent. That's probably because of driving, because the left window's open, you get a little more sun on that side with it. Again, men, if there's a man and a woman in the car, the man's often driving because he's not going to let the woman drive. So the reality is that there's a disproportionate amount from that to do that. So, um, and again, a, a bunch of studies have shown the same thing. However, people do not use sunscreen when they're driving, and there's still some ultraviolet A that can penetrate through window glass in a car. And you can see in this particular study, uh, they were much less likely to use sunscreen while driving. There is automotive glass and tinting that can be gotten. It's very effective. I usually ask that my uh, melanoma patients use this as a sun protection idea. 3M makes the film. It works quite well. Uh, the problem is a lot of states limit how much uh, tinting you can put on a window. So in New York City, for example, there are cops who actually stop you and check the tinting of every window. You have to have a letter to say this was medically needed. I guess they don't want to drive by shooting or something. Um, one of the questions that always comes up is, do sunscreens degrade? This was a study that was just published in the archive, the JAD rather, that looked at it. And the answer to this is if you leave a bottle of sunscreen in a hot car in the summer where it's getting up to about 150 degrees, that's not unusual, the sunscreen will break down. So most of the time you're okay, but if you leave it in a car, especially in the summer, it might in fact break down. Um, altitude also makes a difference. These are my two sons doing a study at the top of uh, Wildwood uh, in Vail at about 11,000 feet in the winter, and they're holding up their UV meters. And, uh, People do not comply often at sporting events. This was a study done again in Colorado, published in the JAN in 2012, looking at skiers and showing that even though they got the message to protect themselves, that in fact uh, only less than 50% were using the rated amounts or doing the right kind of protection for it. Now, the worst part of this is this was a study that just came out last fall in uh, JAMA Dermatology. And what it looked at is how often do uh, offices recommend the use of sunscreen and talk to their patients about it? Well, the good news is that dermatology office had 86% of the sunscreen mentioned, but they were only mentioned at 1.6% of the visits, or about 1 in 60 visits. And it shows that it was going up a little bit over time, but the reality is I think we talk to our patients more than 1 in 60 visits about sun protection. And this is maybe a little hard to read in the back there. These are the diseases associated with discussing with the patient, so AKs, other skin lesions, acne, interestingly enough, solar radiation, uh, rosacea, dyschromias, but you know, the kinds of things, hopefully we, we, we get better than one in 60 for this. So the conclusion is we have an obligation to do better in talking to our patients for this. Um, this was a study looking at uh, high school students. The, the government puts out the UV index, what the ultraviolet exposure or risk will be at any given day, and it runs from zero to 15. Anything 11 or higher is called extremely high. So this time of year around here, you might hit 10 or 11. And, uh, what it showed was kind of interesting. For male students, the higher the sun, was, the sun radiation was, the less likely they were to use sunscreen. And for women, they had no real good association one way or the other. So the fact is high school students are still a challenge, teenagers to get the message across to. But even more disheartening was this particular study that was in the British Journal last year, 
which looked at people who had recently diagnosed with melanoma. And it turned out when they were diagnosed with melanoma, the first year after being diagnosed, their sunscreen usage doubled. It went up twofold for where it was before. But after a year, it actually fell back to where it was or sometimes believe a little worse. So not only get the message out when they're newly diagnosed, we have to keep reinforcing that message to make sure they continue to protect themselves. Now, a few other last brief things before we finish. There'll be some new measures that people are looking at beyond SPF. Um, number one is that they're looking at something called an immune protection factor. As you know, ultraviolet A can actually, part in a short period of time, lower your local uh, immune response. So somebody who's allergic to poison ivy, we could put them in a UVA light box and kind of wipe out their Langerhans cells for, I don't know, four or five days, and they would be immune to the poison ivy issues that they have. I'm not recommending that, but it does work. Um, so if you can measure the amount of immune change, immune response change to things, that's another measure for uh, sunscreen. P53 levels, which are a marker for sun damage and DNA damage that occurs, if you can measure that, and we see P53 changes that occur with unprotected versus sunscreen protected skin. This looks at the generation of free radicals. We talked about that ultraviolet did that before. If you can measure that, the difference of free radical generation, a chemical measure, then this is the so-called radical sun protection factor, or RSF, that's being looked at. And then somebody's proposing this called an IPF, which is integrating these biologic, chemical, and physical measures to then see how effective a sunscreen really is. So these are all out there. So a couple last minute tips on sunscreen. Do you really have to wait 10 to 20 minutes for sun protection? And the answer is no. It actually could be almost instantaneous if it's applied well to the skin. The water resistance may take a little more time. It has to dry on the skin to be water resistant. So you don't want to put it on, although there's some new formulations out there, the so-called beach formulations you put on, they work almost immediately in terms of water resistance. Now, most of the people think you have to rub sunscreen in. Does rubbing in, and the answer is probably no. You don't want to rub it in because you want to have a uniform film on the surface of the skin. You want to spread it lightly. The trick with sprays is tell your patients to do two coats, because they always miss a spot with the spray, but two coats are more likely not to do that. Reapplication is recommended by the FDA as mandatory, but the, true, the good sunscreens that are out there don't wear out after two hours. They start to degrade. Some will last up to four to six hours, but you have to know which ones those are. And uh, finally, I thought this was a good one that uh, was on Good Morning America two summers ago, where this guy caught fire after applying his sunscreen. And why did he do that? He was barbecuing, and he was spraying the sunscreen on himself at the same time he had just lit the uh, kerosene on his barbecue. So pretty stupid, right? This made the New York Times. This was actually what he used. And uh, so generally, advise your patient if they use sprays, don't light their barbecue at the same time. So the last two things that we have is we want to motivate patients to use it. This was an interesting study that basically said if you regularly use sunscreen, your Botox lasts longer. So that certainly motivates women patients. Man, and this is, I, I, did, I did a piece on Fox News yesterday afternoon before I flew out here on some of the changes with the FDA and tanning beds as well as what's happening with sunscreens. There was a study that just came out that said that men are less likely to use sunscreen than women. Well, that's obvious. But uh, one way to perhaps motivate men to do this is that uh, this was a study done in Australia. Protect your largest organ, your skin, from the sun. This is from Australia, not mine. But uh, uh, it works, I guess, in Australia. Um, so a summary, we've talked a lot about photoprotection today, but it's important. It lowers melanoma risk. I think the new sunscreen labeling is helpful, but not the be-all or end-all. Uh, the measures of UVA protection are better, but they're still not optimal. There's room for improvement. 
Uh, the reports for consumers that we talked about, like the Environmental Working Group or even Consumer Reports, are, can be misleading. There's some exciting new formulations that are evolving and maybe coming in the future. And we have to improve getting the message to our patients. And that the fact is that sunscreens are important. They need to be used. But they're only part of an overall photo protection regimen, which should be wearing protective clothing, avoiding the midday sun when you can, and regularly using sunscreen. We know that that triad of behaviors lowers skin cancer risk. And even wearing a sunscreen, incidental UV exposure appears to lead to normal vitamin D levels. We can tell that to our patients. This vitamin D debate is going to continue for a long time because of the multiple groups with vested concerns. But I think we're at least on the science side of it in dermatology, so we should be fine with that. So at that point, I'll stop. I'll take any questions you have. And I hope I gave you some cool updates on sunscreens today. Thank you.